0: I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Steve Fambro is co-founder and co-CEO of Aptera Motors, the solar mobility company that delivers the world's most technologically advanced solar electric vehicle, made possible by breakthroughs in battery efficiency, aerodynamics, material science, and manufacturing. Atera is the first in a series of eco-friendly vehicles that will be offered for consumer and commercial use. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for, uh, for having me, Michael. Well, it really is a pleasure because as someone who was following Aptera all the way back in 2008, as someone who drives an electric vehicle today, in part because of the spark your company lit within me 14 years ago, it really is a pleasure to speak with you. And I think the pitch for Aptera is right there in your introduction. But before we travel back in time to 2006, to the genesis of the company, I'd love to start with two more immediate, timely questions. So the first one is, For listeners who perhaps aren't as familiar with Aptera as, let's say, I might be, and considering this is an audio-only podcast, can you describe what makes the Aptera visually and technologically unique from other EVs on the market today?
1: What makes Aptera different and unique from other EVs on the market today is that from our, our rebirth, if you will, we are primarily a solar power company who's focused first on solar mobility. But we see solar power being integral to not only mobility, but so many other needs. And we realized that it couldn't be an afterthought, that instead it needed to be a very large part of the research, development, the intellectual property that we create. To make solar mobility possible, you first really have to be a solar power company. So most people recognize what that means by seeing Eptera but they probably don't understand or appreciate just how in deep we are into solar to make that happen.
0: And we'll get to the start of the company in just one second, because I think this question ties in. Aptera, back in its initial founding, if I remember correctly, wasn't as solar, if at all, solar-focused back then as it is today. So obviously, solar panels uh, have gotten cheaper, more efficient, more cost-effective, more technologically advanced in the 14, 15 years that's transpired. But was there anything else that kind of moved the needle for you to focus so much on solar in this go-round?
1: Yeah, I, I would say primarily it's with the availability and affordability of the new Maxion cells. We are able to form those cells, the, and they're quite flat you know, and brittle, but we can form them in 3D with our process, whereas we could not with any other cell. So when you saw the first Abtera, you saw basically very flat cells you know, on the roof, that would provide some cooling assist, some ventilation, you know, something like that. Nothing really to move the needle. But once we discovered with our process, we could form these cells in sort of 3D. We could bend them in X and Y. We said, why don't we just cover as much of the vehicle as we can in it? The light went on there. When we first calculated, uh, You know, Chris and I built a mock-up, a full-scale prototype, and put on his roof of his uh, workshop because we had full view of the sun. And, you know, we did some basic calculations and said, wait a minute, forget the roof. We should put these cells over the whole thing. We could get, you know, 30, 40 miles a day. And that was the genesis of that.
0: And to our listeners who, again, might not be familiar with Aptera, I highly recommend you go to the website, which is aptera.us and just look at the vehicle as you're listening to this conversation, because I really think you have to see it to understand the teardrop three-wheel design. It really is something that is really visually grabbing. And I think you have to really see it to understand what we're talking about. I think starting and running a company, especially as one as complex and potentially disruptive as Aptera Motors, is really brutal. Often thankless work. The hours are long. The rewards are comparatively few, and those rewards are often spaced really far apart because you know production and development is a really time intensive, long event. And that's if a company even succeeds, right? So why are you here? Like, why are you doing this rather than literally anything else? Considering how hard it is to found and run a company?
1: I think my personality archetype is that I need almost an existential threat kind of challenge in my life. I, I don't ever see myself retiring. Um, even if I become you know, fantastically wealthy or something, it'll, it'll just be something else I do. Some other project, some other thing that really moves the needle in a big way. When I graduated university and went to work in biotech, it was great because I was challenged well out of my comfort zone. Up until the point where, you know, we built the last robot that was so efficient it put all the other robots that we made out of out of business. And I was put on boring work and I just realized that the the paycheck was almost meaningless to me. I I needed to be challenged and it wasn't challenging me. Work wasn't challenging me in the way it was. And so I think that's just what I learned about myself is that I need to feel that kind of pressure and challenge all the time. I, I feel anxious without it.
0: I can understand that. I know people like that in the entertainment industry where I live and work. And I even know folks in Silicon Valley who kind of feel the same way. That feeling of mental and creative atrophy that someone can experience, someone who's really ambitious, wants to be part of those projects that they feel can be really world or life changing. I've met people like that where literally, if they're not expending all of their brain energy, all of their creative energy on something, they feel like they're wasting it. I think that takes us to 2006 pretty well. You were working for Illumina, which was a biotechnology company at the time. And right before you founded Accelerated Composites, which was what Aptera was initially called, my question is, is back in 2006, you walked through kind of where you were with Illumina. Uh, you created a a hyper-advanced robot that put all the other robots out of business, and you were trying to think of what your next challenge was going to be. So what was the defining moment, in my industry, we'd call it the inciting incident, that caused you to take the leap from employee to entrepreneur? Right? Like, why didn't you just go to another company that was doing really ambitious things? What was the burning ember in your chest that you just couldn't put out that made you have to start the company in the first place?
1: I had started building this as a project without thought of making a company. I wasn't an entrepreneur. I mean, I had, you know, as a kid, I'd, I worked on cars and, you know, mowed lawns and did stuff like that. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself an entrepreneur. I think I, those are just sort of an industrious things that kids, you know, in the 80s, did to get a little pocket change. But for me, you know, being a, an aviation enthusiast and, and pilot, I was following Burt Rutan, uh, Scaled Composites, and, and their work in having the first privately funded and built spacecraft. I was following the Spaceship One quite carefully. And I had studied every video and book about Burt Rutan and his method of composites and and I knew all about his company and all about the different planes. And my wife convinced me not to build a plane, but to build this car instead. <laughs> that was kind of the nexus. And a friend of mine, we drove out to Mojave to watch one of the launches of Spaceship One. Uh, with like hundred thousand, a lot of people. It was like a massive, massive event out there. We watched the launch. We brought a little aviation radio so we could listen in on you know the communications and hear what's happening. Later we kind of sweet talked our way into the VIP event so we could get our picture taken with the spacecraft. And on the drive home from Mojave, I was reflecting on how this team of less than 50 people they designed and built the aircraft to fly the spaceship up. They designed and built the spaceship. They designed and built a flight simulator for it. And they were able to do so because they were small and they were nimble and they could make decisions quickly. But the tools that were available. The computational fluid dynamics, the finite element analysis, these tools that were so powerful and it could run on a desktop computer versus a mainframe back then, and they just weren't available five years earlier at that price. And so I became convinced that if this team of fifty could build a spacecraft from scratch, from ordering, you know, from aircraft spruce and specialty at and Mastercar, then you know a, a small company of twenty or so could design and build this vehicle. That was sort of the rationale. And because nobody was doing it, I instantly thought to myself, well, I have to do it because the large companies aren't going to do it. Detroit's not going to do it. Stuttgart's not going to do it. And it can be done because I just watched the spacecraft fly and land successfully with a very small team. So that was kind of the aha moment that it could be done. And the moment I realized it could be done, then I started planning on how I would do it. I didn't know any entrepreneurs, so I had to find some. Uh, I connected with people who had friends who were founders or who had exited a company they founded. And I just began talking with everyone and determined, okay, here's the path that we have to do to go raise money. And I just started working on that path. That was the aha moment. Okay. So you started with a team
0: of 20. One of those 20 people was now co CEO Chris Anthony, who you brought on as the COO back in two thousand and six. What was and is it about your partnership with Chris that works so well that you've gotten the band back together, so to speak, sixteen years after Aptera's initial formation?
1: Chris and I, you know, we're both we're similar and we're different. We, you know, we both come from the rural South. He had a lot harder upbringing than I. You know, we both were in the military. So we have a lot of cultural similarities and affinity. We're also very different in terms of how we think about problems and solutions. And I would say there's some overlap from like a Venn diagram, but we're really complementary. We both, having raised money and run companies, we both can shift to different modes, You know, to the extrovert, to the manager, to the visionary. You have to be able to kind of shift between these modes. But he's more comfortable in some of the modes than I am and vice versa. And so there's just different decisions that we divide up amongst ourselves, different areas where we just think that one person is better at reviewing that material and making those decisions. We don't do it in a vacuum. We don't do it without consulting with each other. But I think the short answer is we both think that with both of us, we're just stronger than we are added up individually, really a a form of synergy. And I think both of us realized with our other companies, if we had been together when we had formed them as opposed to separate, you know, they might have been a different story. You know, I I formed FAMGRO by myself. I didn't have the benefit of Chris. Chris formed Flux by himself and didn't have the benefit of me. He did well. Flux is, is a public company now, but we both kind of feel that maybe we would have had different outcomes, different trajectories if we'd been tag teaming on these different projects.
0: Yeah, that kind of synergy that can happen when two people really compliment each other well, you know, who are equally as ambitious, but kind of fill in pieces that one might be, I don't know if missing is the right word, but I think compliment is the right word. And this is going to sound like a ludicrous comparison to some people listening to this, but it's kind of the idea like after the Beatles broke up, you know, McCartney went on to do some really great stuff. Lennon went on to do some really great stuff, but it was never, it never sounded like it did when they were working together. And so I totally understand that feeling of, you know, you can be successful on your own, but I imagine once you refounded Aptera in 2019, You began to realize, oh wow, there was really something missing. There was something absent when we were apart that really feels like it's back now that we've started Aptera again.
1: Yes. I think it was really after maybe spending years, a couple of years reflecting on what happened with the previous Aptera that we realized we would be stronger together running an organization than one of us sort of being at the top and one of us being sort of relegated to a lower part of the team. You think about running a especially a tech company you know it it would be different it would be different if if we're a different kind of company but it's a new product it's a new technology it's a new segment there's so much that's new about it that requires a very broad depth of skills that i think it would be you know impossible for one person to do unless that one person is you know some magical person like Elon Musk or something who apparently can, you know, manage all these different companies. I think for us, you know, for us mere mortals, it's far easier to do it with this team of two people than by ourselves And and even something as simple as, you know, tactically, Chris is a night person and I'm an early bird. So I can get up early at four or five. I can do calls overseas. I can do interviews like this while Chris is still getting his beauty sleep, you know, but he'll be up till one or two in the morning working on things. So completely different styles that that complement each other. Combined, you're you're basically
0: working a 20-hour (laughs) workday. That's right. What you said just there about the space still being so new and what Aptera's doing being so new and disruptive still to this day, I think it kind of explains the co-CEO moniker, right? Because when I've been telling some folks I know about this interview we're having right now, and I say, I'm I'm interviewing the co-CEO of Aptera Motors, I've gotten a few people who said, a co-CEO? What does that what does that mean? I've never heard of a co-CEO before. But it sounds like your partnership with Chris is is so equal and so intertwined that you really couldn't have any other title if you wanted to.
1: Yeah. A lot of people ask about it. And, you know, historically there's not a lot of examples, but there were some civilizations like Spartans who, for their entire existence, always had two kings and they made it work. They had rules and areas of ownership that they agreed to. And I think that's really key. When people react that way, I think it is yeah, it is very non-standard, right? You expect to only see one, but for us, it's also a way of ensuring that we have a check and balance on each other in a way that you just wouldn't be able to have with a management team. You know, if a management team pushes back on the CEO, typically that might not go well for that manager, or it could be an enlightened kind of CEO who would take that feedback and integrate it. But in our situation, you know, we need to be able to cross-check each other and know when, when one of us are sort of going you know off the rails or trending in the wrong direction. And I think it's really having that trusted relationship where we can give that feedback to each other and keep each other accountable, keep each other on track and compliment each other as well.
0: That makes sense to me. And the calling back to ancient history is appropriate, I suppose, considering that Aptera is rooted in a Greek word meaning wingless flight. So I suppose it is all of a piece. To go back to something I, I mentioned at the start, I discovered Aptera around late 2008, and I was totally obsessed with the company talking about it with anyone that I could find who would lend an ear. And I know the time frame on when I discovered the company is pretty accurate because I searched my inbox for any mention of Aptera, and I found an email update from Facebook from January 26th, 2009. I can't see what the original comment I posted was since I no longer have Facebook and I certainly don't miss it. But the email was alerting me to a response from a colleague who wrote, quote, that's so funny that you mentioned Aptera. And then in all caps, I love the Aptera. Been following it since Steve Fambro created the prototype in his garage and put the videos on YouTube. I am probably going to put down a deposit to snag a reservation for one here pretty soon, actually, end quote. So for future focused nerds like me and my friends, Aptera was a a really big deal back then. This was before Tesla really pulled electric vehicles into the sexy, acceptable mainstream. And back then, Aptera's vehicle was split into two categories. There was the all-electric 2E that claimed a range of about 100 to 120 miles on a charge and the hybrid 2H model, which could get up to 700 miles with only a five-gallon gas tank. I do want to flash forward to 2019 because personally, I find the present state of the company more relevant and exciting. But I do want to ask, And I'm going to ask, I suppose, rather bluntly. In 2008, you hired Paul Wilbur as CEO and stepped into the role of CTO. And only a year later in 2009, you and Chris left the company entirely. And two years after that, Aptera was liquidated. So I guess my three questions, which are all kind of related, is what happened exactly? What did you learn from the experience? And how are those lessons being incorporated into the Aptera we know today?
1: Well, what happened was, uh, yes, our board encouraged us to bring in what they called professional management from automotive. And somewhat in their defense, you know, again, new segment, new product, new industry. All of us were wondering, how do we go and raise big money, you know, without having someone with automotive experience, at least on the management team. And uh, of course, this being my first startup and Chris's second startup and the amount of money that we are looking to raise, I suppose maybe we didn't, as founders, exude a lot of confidence with the early board that we could do this. And I think we had a lot of self-doubt as well. I think we were on board with getting a professional CEO who had automotive experience. And it was pitched to us as sort of like, you know, the Eric Schmidt coming in to work with Larry and Sergey. And that was what was pitched to us. And that's what we had, were expecting, but we were completely unprepared for the sort of Machiavellian evolution of the power structure and dynamics. And i since come to learn, this is sort of the standard fare, you know, with at the time companies like Chrysler or other automotive companies, you know, it's a very cutthroat, you know, stab your way to the top, climb the ladder, however you can kind of business. It isn't how Chris and I work or deal with things, but I suppose it is a reality, you know, of the world. That's just how the world is. And so I'd say from the beginning, the relationship just didn't work well. You know, we later found out they were not very complimentary or not even I was supposed trying to help us or support us you know with the board they were maybe a um, professional team had some plans all along but it became clear we just couldn't work together there wasn't mutual trust there wasn't respect and most importantly they were unable to raise money so Chris and I had raised all the money at that point so after a year of this you know Chris and I decided that they had to go and uh, we made our case we built consensus With the board. uh, But when it came down to the board vote and the fight, if you will, we were outvoted by one. And so we left the company and parted our ways. So that's kind of the short story of what happened. I went and started a vertical farming company because I I love food uh, and I love growing things and I didn't want to use pesticides or herbicides. And so I, I got my first term sheet in a month after I left Aptera and uh, started FamGro. And Chris started Flux Power, which at the time was, I think, one of the first sort of aftermarket or industrial BMS battery systems that one could buy for lithium. But I would say that we did not align well with the team. There was lots of friction. I think we tried. I, maybe there's always stuff we could do better. But they were trying to run it like a billion-dollar company, and they were spending like it was a billion-dollar company. And they weren't able to raise any money. And so... That was why we precipitated that fight and we lost and that's why we left. I
0: think sharing that is really vital, actually, because even myself who followed Aptera back in the day, when it went under at the time, I was like, oh, I guess, I guess it just failed, right? Like I didn't know the backstory behind it, but the way that you're framing it makes it more in line and more of a piece with, <laughs> let's use the most classic example, Apple. Uh, you have a visionary founder who is convinced by the board to bring in a more traditionally minded CEO, John Scully, the former CEO of Pepsi. And then exactly two years after Scully was brought on, Jobs was out, right? And again, anyone who back then probably wasn't familiar with the inner workings of Apple might think, oh, well, Jobs must have been, you know, he couldn't cut it. And then watching a floundering Apple over the next couple of decades, I guess just Apple is not a good company. But I think what that shows and what your story shows. And putting it in the context of the reformation and the refounding of Aptera today is that oftentimes like if the vision and the leadership aren't really aligned and they don't really know the product they're trying to sell and the product they're trying to make, you can have a really fantastic product and it won't get off the ground. And it sounds like that's what happened with the first iteration of Aptera.
1: That's right. You have to believe in it. You have to at least make an attempt. And these guys and gals, it's just, it's not something that they believed in. It wasn't important to them. I think it was a job where they could make Maybe a mark, and I think professionally they wanted to do that. They did want to make a mark, and maybe in their mind, I think they were doing the right thing. But you know, none of them drove hybrids. Of course, there's no electric vehicles to drive at the time, but most of us did, and you know, we tinkered with electric vehicles, scooters, bicycles, cars, etc. You know, there was this um, sort of ecosystem of hobbyist and lay knowledge. In going in that field, you know, that we had developed. And the team from Detroit just really had no interest in inserting themselves into that. And the way I describe it, that kind of thinking and skill set, you know, from Detroit, this sort of professional automotive design management, et cetera, you know, we've got real automotive engineers that either work with us now or, or work, uh, they're from different companies, you know, all over the world, and they do incredible work. And you need that. Do you need that mentality driving at the top, like the kind of leadership that you have at GM or, you know, Stellantis or something like that? I I don't think so. I think you move too slow, you're thinking about things in ways that aren't really reflective of the unique segment that you're in or that you're creating. And too often than not, you can really only go back to your old playbook. And I think that's just one of the common things that even today we look for with managers who come from other industries. You know, we have to make sure that they're open-minded enough to jettison Thinking that may not be appropriate. And it's very difficult for professionals to do after 40 or 50 years old. It's why larger
0: companies are so vulnerable to disruption, right? I think I've talked about this on the podcast at some point before, but like only Apple could have made the iPhone because at the time they were kind of failing with the Mac. Microsoft was trying to make a smartphone that was basically a miniaturized Windows 95 because that was their strength. And they wanted to build on that strength, not realizing that trying to make a desktop into a tiny little phone was the Absolutely wrong way to go about it. It was only Apple being small, nimble, failing pretty much at the main industry they wanted to crack into that could think from a first principles perspective what's going to make the best smartphone rather than how can we fit a desktop into a, a smartphone casing. But to something you said earlier, Steven, I so relate to it because I think it happens in every single industry. I certainly experienced this on film sets and in advertising. But when I was working in independent film, and trying to get like something I'd written off the ground, I realized very quickly that you can be working with incredibly talented, capable, genuinely fantastic, wholesome, wonderful human beings, people that I am friends with to this day. I realized that getting other people as passionate about what you are passionate about is one of the hardest things to do. Because the thing that is driving you every day, the thing that caused you to leave Illumina, the thing that would cause me to try and start a script from scratch and then try and get all the funds together and and make something, right? Like that burning ember in your chest that keeps you up at night that you have to try and go for it, right? That thing is so unique that trying to communicate that or spread that to other people is so hard. And I imagine that even in this iteration, in the 2019 iteration of Aptera, like you were saying earlier, getting people on board with that vision, finding that right team that's either just as passionate or nearly as passionate As you and Chris are, is probably one of the hardest things about forming or reforming a company.
1: To some degree, let me explain. We're really, really lucky. I think in most businesses, that is absolutely the case. Most of America, right, is built and operated by companies that do all kinds of innocuous things, you know, from building widgets or shipping boxes or making machines that, uh, you know, palletize stuff. And these are all. Critical things for families to have food and for people to have income and for the economy to flow, and like all kinds of critical jobs that are just they're just not exciting, but they're critical and they're necessary. In our case, it's like we've built something that serves as this lantern or spotlight that's very far away that shows people the way and it draws people to it. And it does that for us, the vehicle almost creates that passion and interest for us. It's self-selecting. The people that come to us are already of that nature because they've seen the product and they know where we're going and they know what we're trying to do. And it self-selects for those kinds of people. You know, It wasn't that way with my last company, with FamGro and Vertical Farming. Yes, you have people who are interested in that, interested in agriculture, interested in feeding the world. But it's just on a whole different level with Aptera. And then you add on top of it, the work that Quincy here and Sarah Hardwick are doing to spread this message socially and just to see how this builds up momentum on its own. It's unlike anything I've ever experienced or would have planned for. And I think it starts with the product. And that is what is doing a lot of the inspiration. It's less about Chris and I, you know, needing to speak to inspire people. The product is doing that. That's very well said. Because again,
0: when I've been telling folks about this conversation we're having, most of them, the layperson who's maybe not hyper-focused on the EV market, hadn't heard of Aptera, right? But then I start describing it, or I show them a photo. And I said earlier, and I hope folks have now looked up some images of the vehicle, it has this teardrop shape. But it really is like an exclamation point in terms of when you see it, <laughs> you can't help but think like, what is that? It looks Dynamic. It looks not to uh, to build up your ego too much, deep, but it does look revolutionary in terms of its design. And I think kind of similar to how there's a very specific type of person who's going to go and work for SpaceX. Elon's like, I want to get to Mars. You know, there are going to be people who say, I want to do that too. I can understand how the mission of APTERA, the design of the vehicle, what you're trying to accomplish is going to be like you were saying, the lighthouse, the magnet that pulls people in. That totally makes sense to me.
1: The other component is that nature abhors inefficiency. So we've evolved, every animal and plant has evolved to be incredibly efficient from where it was. You know, plants shut off different mechanisms that consume energy in different states of their existence. Humans do the same. We pattern match to save energy. You know, the brain is the largest energy consuming organ in the body. And so evolutionarily speaking, it wouldn't make sense for us to analyze, let's say, A car, when we look at a car, we say, you know, boxy object, it's rectangular, it's steel, has four corners with rubber things. Oh, this must be a car. Instead, we just pattern match. We learn what a car is and that uses less energy. And so when people see things that are sort of within what nature intended, whether it's the shape of a bird or the way a leaf looks or something like this, it looks natural and you expect it. It resonates with you because it's part of nature. And all we've done is just look to nature and create something that is very efficient in the way nature would. And I think people, because of that, they just instinctively infer when they look at it that this is something that is it's natural, it's efficient, it's not wasteful. And they can just tell without us having to say a word.
0: I want to ask a variation of a question I I asked earlier around motivation and inciting incident. Because Like we've mentioned, in 2019, you and Chris relaunched Aptera Motors and are planning to begin production on your first electric vehicle, the simply named Aptera, in 2023. So what brought you back? What was it about this moment and this market that makes it the moment and the market for Aptera Motors? Why now?
1: After the dissolution of Aptera, I had stopped thinking about electric vehicle startup, anything related to that space ever again. I just put it out of my mind. And I don't know that Chris ever did. And it was maybe two years after we moved back from the Middle East, my, my family and I, I went over there as part of my work in ag tech. We were talking with a friend of ours, actually um, our former lobbyist who helped us pass, what they called the Aptera law, you know, making a three-wheel vehicle able to be qualified for Department of Energy loans. None of us had really lost contact over the years. And so we had a lunch, I think it was in San Clemente. And you know, we were just talking about the state of the industry and how there's really only one company that's dominating the industry, and that was Tesla. And range seemed to be the factor that was driving the sales, the range of the vehicle, and that with the hyper-efficient shape like Aptera and with the new energy density of, of cells, we could pack 100 kilowatt hours of cells in that vehicle and make something that can go 1,000 miles. And so then we could dominate the range segment and that just got us talking again and having the conversation. I think it was me as the electrical engineer. Of course, I went to MATLAB. I started doing some simulations and updating the model that I'd had from 10 years ago. And we determined that, yeah, you know, we could make a very affordable 200, 400, 600-mile electric vehicle that would even 1,000 miles. Because it uses such fewer cells because of its efficiency, you'd be able to go to the same range for a lot less money. And we thought that there was value in that. And we wrote a business plan and restarted the company. We also had a chance at the time to reacquire some of the IP that was available and immediately started creating new IP regarding solar, structures, composites, cooling, etc. It was, I think, realizing that there was no one in the EV market with range being one of the single biggest customer considerations The thesis that had been presented by the industry was, well, we're going to address range by making the vehicles bigger and shoving more batteries in it. And we just thought that was the wrong direction. We have to use fewer batteries to go further. And we want to use fewer batteries to go further because that's less mining, that's less resources, that's less labor, that's less cost for the customer. So we wanted to figure out how to do more with less because the current direction we didn't think would be sustainable without large incentives, or they would only be available for the really wealthy. And we thought that for EVs to have an impact, they need to be available for everybody.
0: And with the starting price point of 25900 it's a lot more attainable than most other EVs on the market. And I want to talk about that price point in just a second. I do think that range anxiety, especially in America, because we're such a car-focused nation really, even though most Americans don't drive more than 40 miles a day, which if you max out the solar panels on the Aptera, it can charge up to 40 miles a day just from the sun. I think that that feeling kind of similar to um, that incredibly successful Verizon ad campaign like 12 years ago, where they would show the entire map covered in red and be like, you can get cell reception anywhere in the US. And that was an incredibly effective ad campaign. Because even though the average American doesn't really leave their 50 mile radius, if that, of where they live, maybe more than a couple times a year for either vacation or seeing family members, just that idea that you could get cell reception anywhere in the US was intensely comforting for people. And from a psychological standpoint, I can understand why. And I think similarly with range, even though, again, most people don't need more than 50 miles of range a day, that feeling that if I want to get up and go, if I want to go travel somewhere, not only can I have a decent amount of range to go there, but there's conveniently placed charging stations. I think really it was a supercharger network that really pushed Tesla over the edge as well. And I think having that electric vehicle infrastructure today is also moving a lot of people. But to kind of build on what you said earlier, Steve, about the technology and the IP that you've been building in the last few years, how is Aptera Motors three-wheeled solar electric vehicle of today, obviously besides the fact that it now has solar panels on it, in what other ways is it different and improved from the three-wheeled model unveiled all the way back in 2007 when it was called the 2E?
1: I will answer that right away. I just I want to touch very quickly on the range and the range anxiety because I agree with you. Most people, you know, they don't need that much range. It is a cultural thing. If you travel and, and live in different countries, there's different sensibilities that people have. When I lived in the Middle East, I learned that people never complain or talk about the weather because it's, just, it's always bad. You know, it's always hot. In the case of like Abu Dhabi or Dubai, it's hot and humid most of the year, it's miserable. And people just don't complain about it. Now here, maybe, or in England, you might have a conversation with the shopkeeper for several minutes about the weather. And so I would say these cultural differences are really important in the US because Americans, and this is from some of the research done by Dr. Clotter-Rapel, he wrote the book, The Culture Code, different cultures think of the car in different ways. And the Americans think of the car as freedom. They think about the open West the Pony Express, you know, manifest destiny heading westward, being unencumbered, being free. And to have your range limited is kind of anathema to that. And so I think you're absolutely right. People don't drive more than 40 miles a day, but we have this sort of cultural baggage or inertia, if you will, of, yes, we have to be free and we have to move unencumbered. And so range is a big part of that. Getting back to your question of what is different about that early Aptera versus the one today. Besides the obvious things, you know, it is bigger, it's more efficient. So we've made it wider and taller while lowering the drag. So it's still everything, the promise of our original vision. It's just so much better. There's a lot of stuff that I think we will, in a few weeks, be able to talk about that I can't talk about now related to the body and the composites. It's going to be transformative for our company, and it radically changes and simplifies how we build the vehicle. So the body structure is just better in every possible way than anything we've ever done in the past. In the original Aptera, the batteries, the pack, I think, was designed. We worked with A123 at the time to design us, you know, an air cool pack. And it, it was very large. I think it was 15 kilowatt hours or something like that. And in the same space of that battery pack, we built like a 400 mile range battery pack. So the batteries are more efficient, the body is better and stronger. We have in-wheel motors now versus this cobbled-together transaxle and electric motor front-wheel drive unit that we had in the past. The suspension is just on a whole different level in terms of world-class handling, geometry, design, and, and amount of testing. It's better in every possible way. And it's styled. The interior is really where you see many of the differences. The original team, the Detroit team, wanted to take over the design elements. And, and they did. And you see that in the evolution. When you look at some of the first images of the Launch App with the big center screen and the wide open view, for the Detroit team, that was too unsettling. They couldn't wrap their head around it. They had to make it what we called like, look like a rental car, you know, with the standard sort of dashboard and vertical stack and round air vents and stuff that people would be familiar in if, like, they rented a Chrysler 200. So I'd say your primary differences are really in the interior because the interior done by Jason Hill and his team is really where we've always wanted to take it. And again, that interior is just better in every possible way.
0: I feel like the phrase, make it look like a rental car. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm speechless. I mean, it, it feels like the uh, exact opposite thing I'd want to hear if I was trying to design the interior of any vehicle, let alone an EV.
1: Well, it's really, I mean, I say that. Not as a dig, but it's really true. I'll just give you an example. So, this is 2008, 2009. We had gone through the system design of how your key fob authenticates the user with the vehicle and you get in and start. And going through the sort of state diagrams and flow charts that we created as engineers, we determined so we don't need the start button. Once you're authenticated and once you're sitting in the seat and you're buckled, you should be able to put it in drive. Basically, what Tesla does today, right? That's the conclusion that we came to. The Detroit team could not even begin to accept that. They believed that we had to have a key. Like, you know, well, you have to put a key in the steering wheel and turn it. You just have to. you know, That's how you do it. They just couldn't even have a conversation about it without becoming emotionally sensitive. They, they, they couldn't jettison this way of thinking to then rethink, what do you really need? Do you even need a start button? Do you even need a key? Why do you need a key? You know, You don't need a key. So these were the kind of battles that we fought. And the interior was one of those battles, and they said this has to be something that we said looks like a rental car. You know, they were very proud of it. But if you look at images of that vehicle, you know, after we left in 2010 or so, you can see it'd be comparable to any you know Chrysler rental car today. I'll use your
0: key example as it's a really perfect point. You were looking at the idea of a key from a first principles perspective of what does the key do? What is the key getting me right? And as you said, the key is just a super old school way to authenticate that the person is allowed to enter. A key to a home is just an analog way to confirm that the person entering the home should be there. Same thing with a car. And so if you can authenticate in another more efficient way, you don't need the key. But understandably, I think, and, and we're all guilty of this to some extent with some of the things that we take for granted in life, we become, either because we didn't create the thing or we don't understand how or why it was made, the motivations for making a thing, we disassociate whatever that first principle was for the creation of the thing with the thing just kind of being necessary to exist, right? Like a car doesn't need a key in the same way a house doesn't need a key. It just needs a way to differentiate between the people who should be in the car or the house and those who shouldn't be. But it's interesting to think about how even people who were really entrenched in the industry of making cars for a living couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that the key is... Just a means to an end. It's not the thing. It's the thing that gets you to what you want.
1: Yeah, I think it's just an artifact of being from that industry. It's not that they were dumb. They were very smart people, of course. Yeah, you know, they they were intelligent. Uh, I think they were caring. I think they wanted to do well. But I think you know, there's always an inertia of comfort, an inertia of you know the way you think. That's difficult to shake off. And I'm not saying this was a factor, you know, in the destruction early of Aptera, but it was one of the factors that just caused us to slow down, Cause us to spend more money. You know, we were taking you know, two months to do something that would take a week um, because we had to argue about things like, you know, why do we need the key? I could go on and on. Even the, the brake pedal, I had to bring everybody out to the parking lot to show them my Prius brake pedal and say, look, this is hollow folded sheet metal. This weighs less than a pound. Why are you proposing a forged you know, cast iron brake pedal? Well, because that's all they've ever designed. You know, at Ford or the company they came from, they, they didn't even know that a hollow folded sheet metal brake pedal exists, like on the Toyota Prius. And I think in any industry, you'd find a similar challenge. You know, the helicopter or aviation, you know, same thing. You have people from industry come, they have some inertia, they have some good stuff that you want too. And that's the way we look at it today is that we look at that industry experience. It's like cooking with sun dried tomatoes or olives or something. You need just a little bit for the dish. Otherwise, it's completely overpowered. That's a
0: great analogy. And yeah, to your point, I mean, we have all experienced versions of this in our lives. To go back and use that Windows 95 phone from 2005 versus the iPhone of 2007, I am sure that everyone working within Microsoft was intelligent, capable, etc. It's just that we are boxed in consciously or subconsciously by just the ways of thinking that we're accustomed to in any field, whether that's technology, creativity, literature government. The inertia, to use a phrase you used earlier, the inertia of how things are is super powerful. And so many revolutionary ideas have died at the altar of this is how things have always been. It is an incredibly difficult thing for any person to get out of that way of thinking and to think, okay, actually, why is this why it is? That's an incredibly difficult thing to do. So it was no knock on your colleagues over in Detroit. It's a difficult thing to wrap your mind around.
1: Absolutely. And I I think, like you said, it could be any industry and it's not a knock against them. I think as humans, as adults, we all struggle with, well, some of us don't know or maybe don't attend to it, but what all of this after the first septera led me to was the study of philosophy and, and stoicism, which, you know, you learn about your circle of control. You begin to understand the ravages that the ego can have. And so I think part of when I say inertia also, the inertia is created, you know, by the ego because the ego we don't like to have our ideas or belief challenged and you know it's very difficult to keep one's ego in check or work on destroying it even you know that's something that the military does in basic training they destroy everybody's ego and then build them back up again to make them into what they want but i think as a professional for me at least i think it'll be a lifelong commitment of learning on how to keep it in check and to realize you know when is reason and logic talking and and when is the ego talking
0: There is a book on my bookshelf, a collection of stoic wisdom by Ryan Holiday called Ego is the Enemy. So there you go. I totally, yeah, totally relate to that. It's a tough thing to fight, that feeling of not being able to separate an idea from the self. Oh, it's difficult because sometimes it can feel like an attack on an idea or a suggestion or a project can feel very much like an attack on your personhood and separating those things and realizing that a thought that comes from your brain, an idea, a project is not you allows you so much more flexibility psychologically creatively to figure out the best solution to a problem rather than thinking oh this person's attacking my idea or criticizing my idea they must be criticizing me that's such a difficult thing to really kind of pull apart is that something to kind of stay on this for a second before we get back to the vehicle is that something where you and Chris are just keeping each other accountable cuz i imagine when you're in the trenches right and working on a difficult problem even if you're familiar with stoicism and its teachings There have to be moments where, you know, you're you may be really pushing for something or Chris is pushing for something, you might not be totally aligned. Is it something where you have to keep each other accountable in that way and remind yourselves like, all right, there's the idea we're working on and then there's us.
1: Exactly. And it's something we both work on together. And I think if a leader can learn to destroy their ego or or keep it in check, it almost becomes a superpower because then what happens is people, whether it's your staff or employees, they can be more frank with you. They can share things with you without you reacting. And that's important. You know, A lot of things don't happen in companies because people are afraid to tell management bad things or things that they don't want to hear. They could even be things that are incorrect, but you know, it's important to be able to listen and not emotionally react. And if you can do that, then people are going to come to you more and the company will be more productive. And so I think it is something that we work on together. I don't want to speak for Chris and and how he does or what he does, but I would say for me personally, I view it for me as like a a little secret superpower where I know that I can see other people in the room maybe getting emotional about a subject, but I feel like I'm just on a calm lake and I'm not bothered at all. And I'm just looking and listening and processing what's being said and doing my best to keep the waters calm in my mind which lets me listen to what's being said. What I found is that when people are emotional, their ego is controlling them. They're emotional. They're not listening to what you're saying. They're just formulating what they're going to say next. That doesn't help them. And so to be able to listen to what someone's saying without just mentally loading the bullets in your verbal response, it's a real superpower.
0: I can absolutely see that. I imagine that that's helpful, especially when you're leading a company like Aptera, where like you said earlier, by the nature of its existence, it is pulling in people who are passionate, right? And there's a lot of overlap between passion and being emotional about something because when you're passionate, you're invested. When you're invested, it's hard not to be emotional about it. So I would imagine that having someone at the helm, it sounds like you and Chris both filled this role in different ways, who can be passionate about the project, obviously, and understand where your employees, where your coworkers are coming from, but also be dispassionate when hearing them out is, like you said, it, it does sound like a
1: superpower. I aspire to be. I'm not saying I'm perfect. (laughs) I aspire to be that and I I make uh, plenty of mistakes, but hopefully it's fewer mistakes based on emotion because of that.
0: Let's get back to the vehicle. The Aptera currently comes in four mileage variants. There's the 250 miles of range, 400 miles of range, 600 miles of range, and 1,000 miles of range. And with the 250 mile variant coming in at 25,900, it's actually about $2,000 cheaper the Aptera's 2007 advertised price of about $20,000 when you adjust for inflation. And the 1,000-mile variant is currently listed at $44,900, which is $2,000 cheaper than the cheapest Model 3, which only has 267 miles of range. Now, obviously, the Model 3 is a considerably larger car that seats five people as opposed to Aptera's two, but that can't explain all the cost differences. So, how are you able to make the vehicle so cost efficient especially at this rather boutique manufacturer stage where you don't really get the benefits of scale
1: those costs are what or those prices are what we advertise starting in 2019 obviously everyone is following the supply chain issues globally prices have gone up on virtually every commodity chip etc so invariably you know we'll have to revisit that as we get closer production and if it needs changing you know change it I'm not saying we will or we won't, but I'm saying, yes, we're all very mindful of those costs and how the, the global market has changed. One of the reasons, the main reason we're able to do that is as an efficient vehicle, we just need less stuff to go the same distance. We have one less wheel, so there's less structure. There's less cost in brakes and wheels and tires, suspension. There's fewer battery cells to go the same distance. There's just less material, less stuff, and that makes it cheaper. That's our thesis. That's why we built the vehicle this way, is to make it more affordable. You know, a typical car body, a body in white, as it's called, we have what we call the Bink, the body in natural carbon. When we can talk about that, I think more openly in in a few weeks. It has about six structural pieces. So a typical has 200 steel pieces, and they all have to be fixtured. Very precise and welded together, and, and they have to be welded in such a way so that it doesn't warp and it maintains its dimensional stability. And there's lots and lots of logistics in inventorying 200 parts because you don't just get them as you need them. They, the way steel is stamped is it, you know, parts are just stamped one after another and then they're inventoried. And so you, you're inventorying steel parts, you know, for thousands, tens of thousands of vehicles at any one time. We have a process that lets us produce composite parts off a of very high throughput assembly process at about the rate that the vehicle is built. So we don't have to inventory parts. We don't have to ship truckloads and, and warehouse you know, years worth of production of materials. We're able to produce them on demand at the rate that they're consumed. And I think that's probably one of the first times in the industry this has happened. So we have fewer parts. We only have six for the body. They're all very lightweight and human, movable, navigable. They're produced at rate. They don't have to be produced and stored ahead of time. And they're low cost. They're going to be comparable to steel. A little bit more than steel because the materials cost is greater. But when you consider the other factors, it's going to be less in total.
0: And I would imagine that these efficiencies are one of the reasons why, let's say, the Aptera can charge up to 150 miles overnight on a regular household outlet instead of, you know, like when I've plugged my Tesla in and in dire need and I've gotten, you know, like 40 miles overnight or 50 miles overnight, if I'm lucky. It's not because the the batteries in in Aptera are like magical and just can charge that much faster. It's because you are able to go so many more miles on the same amount of charge because of things like the 0.13 drag coefficient or the fact that it's so much lighter and smaller and more aerodynamic than a larger car like a Tesla Model 3 or a Model S.
1: That's it exactly. I mean, that's it. You hit the nail on the head. The same outlet you plug in your cell phone you're going to get 150 miles overnight because we just need less power to go the same distance, less energy that has a trickle down effect, you know, and you're going to be waiting less at the charger. When you go to supercharger, you'll be there, you know, a third, a quarter of the time compared to your counterparts and other vehicles. You'll be able to charge 150 miles overnight just from plugging in the 110 outlet. So, and it'll be even faster in Europe with the 220 volt and the power that they have. My English friend always laments how long it takes as a, water to boil in an american kettle versus a kettle in the uk where they have 220 volts you know it's almost instantaneous but here you know it takes a long time to boil but that's it you're going to spend less time charging you're not going to worry about it as much even with the solar you probably don't have to plug it in some months of the year maybe at all but maybe throughout the year just every week or every month depending upon how you drive so you're not tethered in the way that you are with the typical ev like with my bolt i mean the bolts are a fine little runabout car. I've, I've got a one on lease. But the other day, I'm going overseas as part of a business trip. And I was told that my passport has no empty pages, so they couldn't put the visa in it for the country I'm going. I had to get a new passport. And I needed to drive to Santa Monica right away. And I ended up printing out the documents and having to FedEx them up there. They got there the next day because I, just, I couldn't drive up there and back one day with my vehicle without having to spend an inordinate amount of time charging not only charge to go up there because I didn't have a full charge, but then to get back. And so I risked, you know now I've delayed my passport by a day, and it might hopefully get here the day before I leave, but that's just a real-world example of like when you're tethered to power and tethered to electricity like you are with most conventional EVs, it's still a factor in maybe you deciding at the spur of the moment to go up to Los Angeles and back or something like that, because you just know how long it's going to take you to charge or if it's even possible
0: Right. That's a really good point. About it having almost a cascading effect on spontaneity. I have a a dog now. (laughs) I've had him for about four years. I love him to death. He enriches my life in so many ways. He's sleeping right behind me. He's a little lazy, but I try not to knock him. But with having him, right? Like there's an aspect of spontaneity that kind of just diminishes, right? Because I can't just be like, oh, you know, I'll stay out all night or I'll just go on a, a trip this weekend. I have to plan around my dog, you know, who I love to death. But there's a huge difference between taking on a dog, a liability that I gladly accept and a car, right? Like you shouldn't have to think of a car like a liability that eats into spontaneity. That's a really good way to put
1: it. Spontaneity. yeah. And we just did the same thing, you know, our our family, as if we didn't lose enough spontaneity having two children, we added to that by getting a dog a few months ago. Uh, And so uh, you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought about it in terms of spontaneity really until the example of Passport or even your dog, but that, I mean, that is exactly it. The more energy that you have to carry and the faster rate that you need to charge, you know, is really inversely proportional to the spontaneity that you'll have. That's a, my engineering way of looking at it. So you remove those things and you increase spontaneity. I think that's one of the things that we do.
0: Staying focused on design for a second, in a recent video posted to Aptera's YouTube channel, announcing that the company's solar panels were in production, one of the featured employees said, quote, solving the problem of solar for the Aptera, which is generally considered one of the more challenging and novel aspects of the vehicle, means that we've gotten one of the most challenging parts of the vehicle out of the way, end quote. So I guess, why was developing solar panels for the Aptera such a difficult problem to solve? And why was it so important to get it absolutely right?
1: I'm glad you asked. <laughs> when uh, Anuj, the young man Anush who heads the solar team When we hired him, we joked that, you know, we just gave him a a credit card and and some sketches and some prototype things that we made, locked him in a room and said, here, go figure this out. And he did. There was no automotive grade curved solar panel that we could find or that was available for Aptera to be used in the way that we wanted to use. So we, we actually tracked down an application of curved solar cells, which was from the plane, the solar impulse, the solar plane that flew around the world. We found the company that bought that got in contact with the CEO, he came out to meet us and said, look, you know, we're we're not competing with you. You're you bought the rights to this plane, you're working on solar aviation. We're trying to make automotive stuff. But, you know, would it be possible for us to talk to your engineers and, and see the kind of challenges that they overcame? And then we'll share with you what we learned. And what we learned was that the Airbus engineers that designed that plane, they had no idea or no thought put into longevity. They just said, can we bend these in two dimensions and laminate them in fiberglass and make that the surface of the wing? And they were like, yep, we can do it. Okay, let's build it. And that was it. So they have no idea how many of those panels or cells are cracked or how well they're performing, how many years they would last in the sun. You know, There was no attendance given to that because it had a very fixed duration mission. And the reason I cite that is because that was you know, one of the most prolific uh, examples of sort of curved solar panels used in, in transportation so after that phone call we realized that we're just in new territory there's nobody doing it you know there's no one coming to save us and that meant that we had to really start with first principles from the kinds of materials you know how do we achieve strength how do we achieve UV resistance how do you test and even see if you have micro cracks and maxion uh, the cell manufacturer has been really helpful in, in helping you know guiding our team and thinking through some of these issues that we've discovered. But even, you know, Maxion is quite open and very helpful and supportive, but they recognize that we, you know, at Terra is just in, in really virgin territory. And it's because the team has spent so much time and effort in building this body of knowledge that we're able to make these panels. So the challenge for automotive is you've got vibration, you've got, you know, softballs, hail, hot, cold water, you've got all these things that really work on these polymers over time. And you have to attend to that in the material science and uh, preparation, the different treatments and chemical treatments that you may do with certain materials, etc. It's a new body of work to make a curved, lightweight automotive solar panel that can withstand the rigors of automotive use.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine what an entirely different problem to solve it is when putting solar panels on a car versus a roof of a house. I mean, obviously... A roof is subject to the elements, but not in the same way at all as a car. I guess this is more of a general question, and perhaps this is too far into the future, but because you're so knowledgeable about solar and because you and your team have been trying to solve this problem recently, do you see a near future in which you're able to make the solar panels that are across the Aptera and on the body of the Aptera less visible or perhaps not even visible to the human eye so they blend? It looks like they're just part of the vehicle and you can't even see them unless you're looking really closely.
1: Yes and no. There are other materials and methods that I would say we're not exploring with great vigor because we're hyper-focused on just getting this vehicle to production. But we are aware of different pathways we could go in the future that might do that. But I would say it's just not an area of exploration that takes up any of our time right now because the team is just hyper-focused on building these panels for production. At the moment, I don't see how that can be done on a color basis. You know, the color of the cells is kind of a function of the wavelengths that it absorbs. I don't know of a way that we could be able to change it and make it different colors, but smaller cells and different materials that allow us to make larger panels without the sort of faceted cells are something that we could look at in the future. But But right now we're focused on the Maxion solution and getting those panels into production.
0: Understandable. I'm asking a rather luxury question, and you're trying to solve a rather working class problem, which is how do we move this vehicle into production? You know, I would be remiss if I didn't ask this question, especially for some of our listeners who are new to the vehicle. And I'm trying not to call it a car because it really isn't one. It's classified, like you said, almost like a motorcycle because of its three wheel design. So traditionally, a three wheeled vehicle is less stable than four wheeled vehicles. And I think anyone who was once a child, which I imagine is everyone listening, who has ever owned or ridden a tricycle can speak to the relative instability of a three-wheeled vehicle, right? Top Gear even featured a three-wheeled vehicle once. It was known as the Reliant Robin, which had one wheel in the front and two in the back. And that vehicle flipped constantly. So obviously, Aptera has two wheels in the front, one wheel in the back. But on behalf of the listeners, like, how is Aptera accounting for this? And for any hesitant potential customers out there, why shouldn't they be worried?
1: The number of wheels a vehicle has is just one element in its margin of stability and center of gravity. You know There are lots of four-wheel vehicles, many SUVs or crossovers or things that don't have the same stability of, let's say, a Tesla Model 3 or something with the battery pack in the bottom, even though they both have four wheels. So mathematically, we achieve the same rollover stability and center of gravity of a typical small vehicle like a Volkswagen Golf. I would say mathematically, if you were to look at the center of gravity and margin of stability of those two vehicles, Aptera and the Golf, they would be very similar. So we're able to do that with three wheels because at the end of the day, it is just really math and physics that determine that. Number of wheels is a factor. It becomes easier to do it with a fourth wheel, for sure. So Aptera has to work very diligently to move weight forward and around in certain areas, but it is at the end just math and science and it lets us get the same margin of stability of many popular small vehicles today and you can see that on the track i think in some of the videos if people go online to aptair's youtube channel you and see the moose test i mean there's a lot of passenger cars that can't even pass a moose test uh you can see us doing the moose test and uh, drag racing uh audi r8s and, and stuff like that and see that the vehicle is, is quite stable what is the moose test it's a test developed in sweden I don't know if it's by the Swedish government or Volvo, but moose accidents are quite a thing up in that part north of the Arctic Circle. And so to be able to avoid one at high speed, so they tend to wander across a highway, is very important from a safety perspective. So it's basically making a very sudden turn at high speed to avoid an object and return in the lane without the vehicle becoming unstable or flipping.
0: Oh, oh. Today I learned. I I suppose if I was a native to Canada, I would know what the moose test is. Right. (laughs) But we don't get many moose down in down here in Los Angeles. That's right. Unless they're on a film set or CGI. So, Steve, I want to be sensitive to your time. I've really enjoyed our talk today. And of course, it would be great to have you back, perhaps in 2023, once Aptera is rolling into production, because I could talk your ear off for another hour with all the questions I have. As we're heading into 2023 and as Aptera is about to enter full production, two questions kind of related. What is, in your view, the biggest production challenge that you and your team are working on now as you take Aptera into production? And what's one of the things you're most excited about with Aptera, your team, and the company moving into 2023? So it's kind of a two-pronged question. What's one of the more difficult things you're anticipating with production? And what's something that you're just really excited about with the company heading into the new year?
1: The most difficult thing, it's that last little bit of design work where at like 99% Lockdown of design. And it's that last 0.1% that feels like it's just taking an inordinate amount of time. And it's just the way it is. There's nothing that can be done about it. And so, you know, seeing where we can spend money and add people to speed things up or things that can't be speeded up, that's the most frustrating. Things that are just going to take a certain amount of time, you know, even if you had a truckload of money to shovel into it, those are the frustrating things. Usually, those are things that are outside of our control, you know, done by outside parties or agencies. The second part of your question, uh, the most exciting thing about 2023, I think it's just that, is you're going to see all this come together and seeing a real tooled Delta production vehicle come off the assembly line next year. And every facet, every single part made by a tool, precise, fits like it should for a factory-produced vehicle. And then they're just going to start coming off the line And seeing that first one, I think, it's just going to be incredible because it literally will have been our, our modern lifetimes and two separate attempts you know, spent to get to that part. And once we see it, I think it will be a massive, not a sigh of relief, but just a sense of completion, kind of turning the page of that chapter and now just focus squarely on increasing production, different variants, looking at different parts of the world. It'll be just a whole new way of looking at the company.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine how it's going to feel. The culmination of nearly two decades of thought and work coming together on that production line next year. Well, Steve, I just want to say, and I really do mean this, I think I speak for a lot of people in that the Aptera, back when I first discovered and so many other people discovered in 2007, 2008, 2009, it really inspired a lot of us to start thinking about electric vehicles in a fundamentally different way and take them seriously before the Roadster was even really out on the road or the Tesla Model S, it got me interested in electric vehicles for the first time. And so I'm really excited about where Optera is going next. It was such a pleasure to talk with you today because your vehicle and your company has been such an inspiration for me and has set me on a trajectory in terms of the vehicle I drive today. So thank you so much for your time and thanks for the work that you and your company are doing.
1: Michael, it's a real honor. Uh, This has been a great interview. I've really enjoyed the questions, enjoyed the dialogue. And I'm so pleased to have this interview with somebody that's been a fan for so long. So it's my pleasure to be here. And we look forward to having you here at Aptera one day to ride and see and hopefully own one of our production vehicles. Oh, man.
0: Ah, you're getting me excited, Steve. All right. Well, with that, I'll have to let you go. But now I'm going to be daydreaming about that all day. So thanks so much for your time. (laughs) Thank you, Michael. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. I want to learn more about the Where We Go Next audience, which means I want to learn more about you and your thoughts on the show. So if you're listening right now, please send me an email at wherewegopod@gmail.com at gmail.com and let me know, one, what's your all-time favorite episode of the podcast and why? Two, what's your least favorite episode of the podcast and why? And three, Where would you like to see this show go next? And hey, while you're here, if you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you.